But I mean, that, I mean, just like that guy at Boiled Dinner uh, said, uh, Jesse Jesse from Boiled Dinner said, "It's that math cock," and that's that's who I am, and I that, and I accept that math cock. Yes, that math cock. That math cock. It, it sounds about right, doesn't it, Nathan? I guess. I mean, sure. but then again, I mean, that all is part of my general plan to uh, take down Boiled Dinner, and if they haven't understood what I've been trying to do to them yet, they probably do now. I'm trying to split them up. And, you know, get Wilfred Dale the Robot to, you know, go after Jesse Jesse. But it turns out Wilfred Dale the Robot's a big Picard fan, so I don't like him anymore. So now my favorite guy is Chet Friendly. And I'm John hoping... Picard. I... Nathan, the you best can... commander ever. Nathan, shut up. Hello, this is Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Combinations and Permutations, episode 17. On this week's episode, we discuss sponsorships, broken windows, social networks, and leave you with a very special song. Here it goes. Hello and welcome to Combinations and Permutations, the math podcast that comes to you from CDC Building 7's mailroom. And we have a special episode. I know I tend to say that most weeks, but this time it actually is special to me and not necessarily to anybody else. And the reason that it is true that it is special to me will become obvious in a couple of seconds. But before that, I'm going to introduce once in a very nice way, returning guest extraordinaire, a very nice guy, and a very smart mathematician, Nathan Rowe. Hello. As you can quite expect, he looks shocked that I have not called him a bunch of names yet. I'm just kind of disappointed. <laughs> I look forward to this every week. Uh, yeah, I know. But I also know what's going to make you mad, so I just go for that. And then, next up, uh, I want to introduce my sister, Lara Coward. The reason why I'm actually quite happy about this. I, I feel like I should have some sort of thing. Uh, the person whose uh, height is much shorter than mine, but whose torso is the same size. <laughs> I have an exceptionally long torso and an exceptionally big head, really just because it's long as well. It's deep. I never I never noticed that you had a large head. Oh, I do. With if... the same hat size. And really? That was Sean you... speaking, and Sean has... Oh, uh, well, just... just oh, sorry, I, sorry. I got it, I got it. Just... Jumping ahead of things here. You're stomping all over my hosting duties. Just just like you used to stomp all over my toys as a child. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, next up is... My sister's fiance and a fan of a horrible baseball team, Sean Egan. Hi, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Long time listener, first time uh, guest. Here. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now, Larry, Larry, you can go on with whatever I interrupted you from saying. Sean is eight inches taller than I am, and he's a good bit. He's bigger than I yeah, am. Yeah, taller around. than I am. I think. Well, yeah, I'm I'm taller than everybody I've ever had on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I Is that am one of your special rules? You only invite guests that are shorter? Well, nope. yeah. yeah mostly because it's really hard shorter. to find guests who are taller than me. Yeah. Maybe a good basketball team here. Uh, yeah, I wonder. I wonder yeah. if the basketball team would be willing to be on the podcast. 
The whole the whole team. <laughs> yeah, the whole team. Well, just the, think... just the starting five. You might need to move out of the mailroom if you do that. <laughs> yeah, I know true. we've recorded with seven people in here before. When when did we have seven? You weren't on that oh, one. Okay. It was the calculator episode. Oh, okay. I didn't. I mean, I did listen to that one. Nathan doesn't actually listen to the podcast. I listened to some. I listened to the one with your father. That was oh. pretty good. Yeah, because I, as you can see, I I really like bringing family members in, mostly because the rest of my family is much smarter than I am, and it's useful to have somebody who's actually intelligent on the podcast from time to time, because most of my normal you, guests aren't. Are your podcast listeners familiar with uh, your family's storied history of space exploration? Uh, no, no, I haven't. I haven't brought that up. But we'll, I'll bring that up when we do an episode on, uh, you know, astrophysics or something like that. But there, I kind of want to hear about it now. Biomedical oh, research. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Biomedical research. We also have a history in. Uh, okay, we didn't actually go into space, space exploration. <laughs> Did you climb my, a really tall tree? Yes, <laughs> and then I jumped out. No, uh, my my grandfather was a worker for NASA during the Apollo missions. He was the one who was in charge of the group that built the clean room for the astronauts when they came back from the moon. Apollo oh, 13 okay. mission. Okay, because they, they, they were so worried about they thought they would space be like germs. They were going to quarantine them for six like months little... or a year with the plan. Yeah. They did not. No, they, up... they quarantined them for, what, a couple of weeks, something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think it was four or six. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I understand. It's a good idea, but it's, it's still like space... There should be so many more dangerous microbes on Earth than in space or on the moon. Well, I, yeah, I but we think. didn't understand, you know. Well, yeah, what you, the we weren't sure. Like. We weren't sure. It was a good safety idea. Right, it would make a very sense. Hospitable we... environment, though. When you think yeah, about yeah. Well, with the amount of UV rays, nothing can really survive. But if we go to Mars, it would actually make sense to quarantine them for a long period of time. Yeah, there there is likely to be um, at least frozen or yeah. something bacteria. Well, we've and stuff. we found frozen microbes on mars i believe haven't we i don't think it was so. or at least evidence of there, there's there they found liquid water or, yeah. or evidence mm -hmm. of liquid water which is in turn Consistent evidence of yeah with life yeah okay so uh wow we've this is i believe is the longest we've ever gone before actually mentioning a uh, a topic so let's uh jump into the topic and now both of our uh traveling guests both sean and my sister I happen to work in the social science realm of the world. Uh, my sister works in uh, for a group that does educational research under government contract. I believe is right. That yes, sounds about right. And then uh, Sean works for the state of Maryland doing budget analysis. That's right. Uh, a friend of mine used to say, he used to open any speech that he would give with the seven words. He said that every American should fear. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Yeah, that those are actually some of the scariest words when I think you, I've ever heard. When you said that, I like for some reason you just looked like Will Ferrell from, uh, you know, the, the Stranger Than Fiction. You know, like like when he when he like shows up and is like, "I'm I'm here to help you with your taxes uh, or or whatever." I just I don't know. It just hit me. I don't know if that's if that's a insult or a compliment. <laughs> I love Will Ferrell. So. Every, I love Will Ferrell too. Uh, yeah, big but fan. but do you want to sound like Will Ferrell? Do you want to be as funny as Will Ferrell? Do you want to look Stranger like Than Will Fiction Ferrell? wasn't wasn't so much a Will Ferrell comedy. Well, yeah, I, I I was just never mind. Really good though, I liked and, it. Uh, not even just it, I'm I'm gonna, I'm not being nice to Nathan anymore. Nathan, be quiet. I'm gonna introduce the topic now. If it's all right with you, eat your chicken tenders from Canes. I'd recommend it. 
Yeah. Okay. Can we get way. a sponsorship deal maybe with Canes? Uh, I mean, man, I would love to have a sponsorship deal. The, I mean, uh, all I really ask for as far as if you want to sponsor, if you want to sponsor combinations and permutations, and we will talk you up. We'll talk you up like you are the Higgs boson particle. Every single week. If that's what you're looking for. Yeah. I guess. Well, I mean, you're the God particle. I mean, that is something. That's, well, I mean, we'll talk you up like that. All we ask for, all I want, $15 a month. I will sponsor you. You can become a sponsor of combinations and permutations. You probably shouldn't have just dropped a for hard $15 like. $15 a month. What about free food? I know I want fifteen dollars. Now, would you would you build it as, as an underwriter? How would you? I mean, in, in the it sort could, of it public could be radio a parlance, how it could just be listed as a donation, and I will just talk about how you donated to me. <laughs> so it's I a tax think... write off, even. Well, it's not a tax. Yeah, because okay. you're not. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, create, we'll create a membership program similar to NPR or whatever. <laughs> And and they'll send in their fifteen dollars, and we'll send them back a photo of us giving them a high f- or a thumbs up. I would prefer um, a coffee mug or tote bag. Oh, <laughs> mm. as as we were talking about, as I have decided, podcast T-shirts are the new band T-shirts. So maybe I mean a T-shirt. You want to tell the listeners about the T-shirt that you're wearing right this very moment? Well, I I believe I may have mentioned it in the past, but I am a huge fan of MaximumFun.org and uh, their podcast, The Sound of Young America, Casper Hauser, and Jordan Jesse Go, all of which I subscribe to and listen to religiously. And I'm uh, very happily wearing a Jordan Jesse Go t-shirt. And I'm probably going to send in a link to the Max Fun Forum and point out I may be the first person currently who has podcasted while wearing the podcast t-shirt. Oh, we should get a photo. Except for probably them. I bet I bet I, they I wear don't, it all the I don't, time. No, They're like, because, oh, we got a because podcast Jesse, today. Jesse Thorne, America's <laughs> Radio Sweetheart, only podcasts in suits. <laughs> okay. Because he is a classy, classy man. And but underneath then, that suit, a t-shirt with himself on it. <laughs> I think I would like to issue a challenge to the many, many hundreds, if not thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of listeners to the podcast. I don't know. Most of you are probably familiar with Cafe Press, where you can submit Yes. Designs yes, that can be put um, on mugs, T-shirts, tote bags, etc. Uh, I think if we could get a combinations and permutations logo and design up on Cafe Press, I mean, there's a certain and threshold. don't don't use the logo that's on that's on the uh, the blog. You or can on use the that for inspiration. Page. Yeah, just don't use it. I put that together in five minutes. It's it's bad. I'm not uh, honest. But I'm we'd really like to see what the folks out there at home uh, can come up with. Yes, and if you have any ideas and you want to design a logo, please email me at combinationsandpermutations at gmail.com or post something on the uh, blog page at combinationsandpermutations.blogspot.com. And now we are actually going to introduce a topic and start talking about math because ostensibly that's what this damn show is about. And that topic, oh, since, nice. we have a, since we have a couple of people who have – experience in well in budget very specifically is a great example of this in the way that math is used in the social sciences that is what i want the topic to be about this week because i'm the host and i can choose the topic if i damn well please do and so but you uh, can't make us talk about it no i can't and so far i've been derailed rather effectively (laughs) from actually talking about it so I, i have a question as a as a budget anal- analyst or whatever, do you do do you do like the economic models of, of trying to figure out how much money is going to come in, or you do, do you try to figure out where the money ought to go? Oh, or... it's the it's the second part of your question. Where does the money? Uh, where should the money go? Um, I 
we do we don't do anything on the revenue side okay. everything that we do is on the spending side but we do some forecasting work based on um, in particular the projects that i work on are in the construction market and okay. so we try to get a sense of what's going to be happening over the course of the next year and we're doing a five-year plan and try to understand what's going to happen in the next five years in terms of the costs of um, construction inputs so materials like steel and concrete okay but, um, and and get a, a sense of that and look but at but you're but you're not trying to uh trying to forecast how much construction work there will be in the coming years well that's part of the model as, okay I mean, that there, seems, there, there's that a seems lot like i mean that is a very iffy kind of scary territory right now what where that will there even be any construction i mean <laughs> you know i mean compared to yeah i mean i, I think that you've got to look at there are a couple different aspects of it the one aspect of it is if you look, you divide up the construction market into two uh, markets, the residential construction market, which has pretty much fallen off a cliff everywhere in the United States and doesn't appear to be coming back anytime soon. You've got a huge oversupply um, on the market right now. Well, especially in the Baltimore area where you guys are. Where, I mean, because what did, my sister was telling me the other day, What's the population fallen? In 1968, roughly, you had, what, 950,000 people? And now you have around 650,000 people. Oh, wow. So there um, are a lot of vacant homes. Um, You could still have plenty of room for residential construction because a lot of those homes can be renovated. Yeah. And are very not okay. so much so, right so now. So renovation rather than new buildings. They do new buildings, too, which leads you to... And Even more wanna, vacant homes. People want to live in the new house, not in the. I want. I've always wanted to live in the old, like kind of creepy, but but you, you know, it's like it's been standing for a hundred years, so you know it's good construction. You know, all the homes they build nowadays, or at least look like construction. Yeah, but I mean, you know, everything they build nowadays seems like it's meant to last about fifteen years. You know, do you ever get that feeling? Yeah, yes. I, I get the feeling that the building we're in was supposed <laughs> yeah. to have been torn down yesterday. Well, this yeah, this building. <laughs> well, you remember like the Potemkin Village that they set up in Blazing Saddles? Yeah. Where they all rode through it. That's what I think of. Um, yeah. A with, lot of with modern, modern construction. Yeah. Okay. And I, with the other side, I mean, you do that so, kind of thing. What so, sort of math do you actually run into? Um, so we look at um, several different forecasts um, and try to... Um, I mean, some of the, the most basic stuff is going out and looking at different forecasts and doing some, you know, weighted averages based on how relevant the particular forecast is to. So that's like pretty basic, um, trying to bring those together and, and assign different weights to different uh, forecasts that seem more appropriate. Um, some of the other uh, statistical type work that we've done is uh, we did an analysis of the juvenile uh, detention population in Maryland and how many juveniles are being um, detained throughout the state. And we went back and looked at about six years of daily count data and did what's called a peaking factor analysis, which basically um, you look at the average daily population see, um, over this period. And then uh, the state of Washington had done a juvenile justice study and recommended that you should have at least enough capacity for two standard deviations above the um, average okay. for the year. Yep. And so what we did is okay. we went back through and looked for each one of those years. And uh, we used that method to calculate how many beds, because we're building new detention centers. And so how many beds do we need to build? Should we build just for the average number? 
or for the because half the time you're going to be above whatever the yeah. average number is. So we did the yeah, average. Yeah, because we cost a bunch of people in jail who don't really need to be there. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> political is, statement. This, yeah, this is juvenile detention. So this is very kind of treatment oriented. We don't call it jail. We're very <laughs> careful about the terminology that we use with the juvenile population. So, so yeah, I mean, it seems like it seems like if you just go two standard deviations above the average or something like that you will run into problems because because it's not it's not like there's a it's it's not going to be normally distributed from day to day it's going to have massive peaks and things like like in the summer or something people probably get into more trouble yes uh, etc so um it's during the summertime and then particularly um at about three o'clock in the afternoon from some some three three but that's five, not right? during the summertime that's during right. the school that's during year the, yeah, right. during oh, school no. year, the crime as soon as school gets out um, three o'clock. You see, because they're spikes. all they're all bundled together Even and for students, daring each other. Well, or for kids that have dropped out of school, they still have a higher incidence of uh, crime. Well, probably because they yeah, meet up it with would be their when they, friends. Yeah, all get together. I mean, that's a that's a probably a pretty easy causation to figure <laughs> out. But there there are other variables in play. So there might be um, a police chief or a mayor who decides. You know, I've had enough of these kids, and so we're going to have a big crackdown, and I'm going to have every cop on the force out rounding up these kids and putting them in bracelets. And if you get, you know, a, a day or a weekend where there's everybody is out um, putting kids in bracelets, yeah. you're going to see these huge spikes in the detention facilities. And so you have to be prepared for to, that. To be able to take them all in, things like that. Okay. I mean, one of the other issues that um, I came across in my first year was in the adult detention system, there was um, a new policy that the mayor of Baltimore instituted where um, it was community policing, broken windows policing, which is you lock people up, you arrest people for very minor, like bro broken glass and yeah. uh, littering and uh, very minor infractions. And the idea is that um, it'll create an environment that has a low tolerance for crime. Um, and so there Does was, that work? It worked in New York. Um, it didn't work. It wasn't particularly effective in my analysis in, in Baltimore. What it did was it drove the number of arrests. Baltimore is a city of about 640,000 people. Um, in 2000, there were about um, 85 to 90,000 arrests. So <laughs> wow. how many were repeat, and, though? Would, would the unique. I don't have the number on yeah, unique right. arrests. It doesn't matter. And there's um, a reason they made the wire in Baltimore. Right. Um, but it's an absolutely, it's a huge number. It's one out of every seven people. Um, that's in that's in the late 90s and 2000. One arrest for every seven One arrest people. for every seven people. Um, that was before the policy started. Now, once the mayor instituted the policy, the mayor who's now my boss, he's the governor of the state. Um, once he instituted this policy, the arrests went from... 90,000 a year up to uh, a peak of 114,000 a year. But then but then the, the goal was, I mean, just by the nature of this plan, it has to peak and then it's supposed to climb down and climb to lower levels. That's the idea, yeah, but is that it, you have a brief period of intense enforcement and then it creates a different environment in which crime is right. less tolerated and so there's less of it. Um, now, we had, when I came into this analysis, we were looking at um, the city jail population and the jail uh, administrators had brought in a private consulting firm to do uh, a population projection for what do we think 
we need to plan for for our jail population and the consulting firm came in and did an analysis and said all right well um, the population has grown from 90,000 to 115,000 in the last five years so what we're going to do is we're just going to project that that trend is going to continue <laughs> that rate into the future and so Oh, so I looked at the forecast and the forecast said that by 2020, there'll be 165,000 arrests a year in Baltimore. And I looked at this and I, and I said, this is absolutely ridiculous. There's no yeah. way that a yeah. police force with 3000 officers is going to be able to it, increase Baltimore's by 50%. force is only 3000. Yeah. Wow, that that doesn't sound that doesn't sound too bad. I mean, that's still that's for a that's city with one in, Baltimore's history of crime. It seems kind of low to me. I guess I guess it's one in two hundred people are a police officer. Uh, so I, mean, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's. I have no idea what normal. You can ratios also see are. big jumps in the crime rate. Say the homicide rate last fall went up when they offered less overtime. And so, with hey, the, big plot device yes, on the wire. <laughs> yes, imagine that. But it, it happens in real life yeah. pretty regularly, and you can see it. And so, with these, how many police officers? Three thousand. Yeah, Three thousand. Unless if they're performing a lot of overtime work, yeah. it's insufficient. Right. Maybe so even if they are. I mean, the idea that they were going to increase by about fifty percent the number of arrests when, once it got over a hundred thousand, the everybody in the department was saying that they were that affecting every arrest that could possibly be affected. And that was sort of what the, and so um, one of the things that I was trying to do was to look at some of the variables and what the limiting factors within the analysis were. And uh, we ended up scrapping the uh, analysis that and the forecast that the consultant had done. And I sat down with a couple of people who are good state employees and we hashed out what I think is a much more reasonable um, approach which actually we that was about two years ago and um the figures over the last two years have supported the uh, research we were a little bit on the conservative side oh, so okay. the figures have been under uh, oh okay so, which is better which is yeah better. Yeah, 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 yeah yeah that's true. Uh, kids sleep in have, you, beds. have you ever thought of doing any like latka volterra predator prey stuff with those populations <laughs> oh, okay sorry I, well i mean it doing my latka volterra is one of the at least from the math side of the world, not the stat side of the world, because I do really think that there are different sides of the world. Um, Lack of Volterra, it's it's the way that was originally used to uh, model, uh, you know, like rabbit and wolf populations. <laughs> it's a set of pair differential equations that work incredibly well in closed populations uh, for modeling the, uh, you know, the size of a population of predators versus the size of the population of prey. You know, the amount of predators goes up, the amount of prey goes down, the amount of prey goes down, the amount of predators go down, and it, you know, gives you an oscillating curve. Now, it just, it would be an interesting, uh, it'd just be an interesting analysis to check to see if you can notice any sort of uh, oscillation in population of, say, the prisons or uh, the amount of people working in the police force or, you know, amount of people even in the government, something like that, that could possibly, or the amount of money, you could actually just model the amount of money as as your predator instead of the amount of police yeah, officers that, as your predator. That's an interesting idea. I mean, and I think... See if that you can, if you can affect that, because if you can and it follows that sort of thing, there's, there's certain things that say, uh, say, you know, the DNR, Department of Natural Resources, people do in order to decrease, you know, populations. And you might be able to use those same techniques 
in the world in that way in order to try to decrease the amount of uh, people in your prey situation. In this case, that would be the people committing crimes. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about this uh, particular forecast is that it presents an opportunity for a nice mix of uh, quantitative and qualitative analysis. Because yeah, true. if you look at the driving factor, the single most important variable in the forecast is the mayor and police chief's uh, policies on how often yeah. and how many arrests they expect um, to be affected. And that's not something that lends itself to a quantitative analysis, but it's something that you have to, you, you can, you can see evidence of it in the numbers, but you don't see um, that variable represented um, quantitatively. And one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking about predators, you would have, you could look at, like Laura was saying, overtime, you could look at man hours yeah. on a month to month basis, maybe, and look at if there was a particularly high month of overtime, uh, what was the impact on the arrest population? Yeah, even more interesting. And you would have a lag over time, I would imagine. Yeah, well, that's, that's what I was going to say. Even more interesting would be to check a couple months down the line and see mm -hmm. if, uh, you know, putting those people away actually did decrease crime mm -hmm. later on. There's a school of thought also that uh, by putting people in the jail system that frequently, you it end up creating increases, a super criminal. Yeah, it basically. increases the amount of crime that actually, or the... It increases the, the intensity the of intensity, crime. Intensity, yeah. I, I, I think that, I mean, we're talking about seeing these oscillating trends and things like that. Have you guys ever been to uh, Google Trends? Um, you can, you can type in a search th thing and it'll, it'll list, it'll list how often that term has been searched at, throughout a year, you know, and you see things oh, oscillate. Yeah, so that. like ice cream will shoot way up in the, in summer, the summer and then shoot down. <laughs> and then there are certain other things that, you know, there's a correlation, but there is well, the, no way. A the causation. really cool one that you showed me was actually the way that they found that you can very accurately model the amount of flu infections by the amount of people who are searching flus, or searching the term flu or influenza, or in and, and, and given just by area symptoms. So how did that did that play out well during the swine flu? No, it's it, it would have well, been useless for swine. Yeah, flu yeah. During during that period of time, event. yeah, so many people would be searching without feeling, you know, just yeah. to just to kind of learn. But, but that's yeah. the thing with I feel like with any sort of mathematical model in the social sciences when you apply it to real world situations you're going to have these intervening variables yeah. and, so say and you have, right, shows right. up in the news everyone looks it up yeah right, and, right. and you have to you have to be careful and you really do have to pay attention to things like that but but you can sometimes that... sometimes it does work i mean because the flu thing mm -hmm. actually is a very mm -hmm. good predictor but as you said, I mean, swine flu, no, there's no way that that could have predicted anything because everybody in the world who had access to the internet was on their version of Google that day typing in swine flu. Right. But there are implications for, that, <laughs> for the healthcare system with that too. When there are major news stories about, when there are major news stories about uh, a health issue, the number of people who are visiting emergency rooms and doctor's offices skyrockets. Yeah. And then infections can spread as a because result of those visits to the, the number one place that you get infected. I mean, or I mean, most infections occur in hospitals, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, a, a rather scary it's thing. Concentration of yeah, because yeah. I mean, you have a bunch of sick people, you're putting them in a single sealed building with negative airflow. Because I mean, you don't, you also make sure that the airflow in hospitals do, doesn't get sent out to the street. 
because of the pathogens that might be in the air itself. Yeah, you could you could have a big a big um, like air shaft that goes out uh, like upward, but then you yeah, pelt then it we, with yeah, UV. Yeah, <laughs> you pelt it with yeah, UV if, light if it's something, something really bad, it, it goes <laughs> it goes up and then blankets over. Because imagine in Vegas, because we're in the middle of this, we're in the middle of a valley here with mountains on the side. And if you send something up, it would just see. sit there on top of us. You can just see like the the germs and and <laughs> flu viruses just just piling up in the center of Las Vegas and like creating a like a ocean of <laughs> <laughs> infection. Yeah, we might get our first intelligent bacteria by doing that. Just let them just chill out up there, kind of like Wolfram Alpha will be our first intelligent computer. <laughs> what? Well, we tried to make it intelligent last week. Wolfram Alpha, for those of you who don't know, it's uh, uh, Wolfram. Uh, it's Stephen. Uh, is it Stephen Wolfram? I don't know his first I th- name. I think it's Stephen Wolfram. It's his new knowledge engine. It's very much like Google, except it's just quantitative data. It's a data yeah. search instead of a it's, web it, search. It'll like there. It but we tried to type cool in things. "become sentient" and it didn't work. We we're we we're, we we're upset about that. <laughs> Especially with Terminator Salvation opening, we've just really figured we might be able to just make Skynet by typing in a couple of words. But now that we've talked about uh, budget analysis, let's go to uh, math and educational research. Well, this is a, it's once again mainly statistics, descriptive oh, statistics. Yeah. But what we do where I work is we collect a lot of data from schools all across the country and what kids know and can do is our line. So can they do math? They can, um, <laughs> different levels in different places. And then, but so when we get all these data, we do a lot of gap analyses as well, saying look at the difference in performance level between different states or between different racial subgroups, ethnic groups. Well, not a lot of ethnic groups, but based on the federal reporting, it's what about Hispanic. Gender? And you can do gender as well. That's not done as frequently. They well, tend to stick to race and socioeconomic variables. So I've heard, I've heard, um, I want, I want you to confirm or deny this, but I've heard that the most telling single variable about future academic success in college is parents' income. Mother's ma- maternal education is more telling. Oh, educational okay. attainment. Mm-hmm. And and then um, and that's parents' income telling. is number two. Or? <laughs> Um, I don't know what's number two, and okay. really there are a lot of okay. different studies that point in different ways, and it depends on what you're looking at, but maternal Education. educational attainment is a stronger indicator, and that's stronger than paternal educational attainment. Uh, and it makes sense, especially in our society. We yeah, you, the mothers tend to spend more time. Yeah, especially on educational things. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I bet that there's a strong correlation between mothers' education attainment and fathers' So by looking at the mothers, you can predict the fathers to a And there's a strong correlation between educational attainment and income. Yeah, Yeah. okay. (laughs) All of these combined. Yeah, everything feeds in together. And between educational attainment and books in the house, which is a very strong attainment, say books in the house for a four-year-old, if you have more than 100, you're much likelier to go to college than if you have fewer than 20. Yeah, there's there's a new set of research that came out really recently that I thought was very interesting. It actually showed that the number one way of telling a, a future accomplishment actually has to do with whether or not you're able to hold out on an Oreo. Yeah, no, that's really true. It's, it's what is the, it? It's de- of denying pleasure. De- pleasure. denial of pleasure. Mm-hmm. I was very good at holding back on Oreos. I would I would like 
like take them twist off the tops and separate everything out until I just had a stack of the white. No, no, no. This icing. this was you had one Oreo on the table. And you're like what, six or seven years old, yeah. something like that. One Some Oreo of them on were a table. Four, I yeah. think and there was a big difference between the kids' ability to yeah. hold off on pleasure when they were four as opposed to yeah. five. And they, they found that just because you didn't hold off on pleasure so at four say, wasn't a big thing. But it was yeah. a little bit yeah, later a little on. Bit later. Right, but so, they so say what's... essentially Here's an Oreo on the table. You can eat this Oreo now, or if you wait five minutes, then you get two it was, Oreos. It was 15. 15 minutes. Oh. Which is a lot harder than five. And then they leave the kid alone in the room. That is awesome. With the one Oreo on the table. <laughs> and so there are a lot of different cases. And another thing that they discovered with this is the kids that had some sort of coping mechanism. Yep, it was always the coping Did better. Mechanism. So there was one boy that turned around and kicked his legs violently, yep. and that distracted him from the Oreo. Th there was a person, so he was more likely not to eat it. Yeah, there's just a video of this on uh, it, that was just shown on the TED website. I don't know if mm -hmm. you guys look yeah. at TED at all. And there's one kid who literally shoved it onto their nose <laughs> and just sniffed it. Like, it, by, the, by the end of the time, managed to not eat it. <laughs> but by the end of the time, there was like chocolate <laughs> dust on her nose. Goodness. Oh, just the girl too. Her, I was picturing a guy nose. for sure. Yeah, and it, it denied. Was how? able to deny the pleasure. Like if, just if turn it's around. right in your nose, how do you then deny eating that? Like I don't know. I think that would be worse. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you have say your chicken tenders right in front of you, you can smell them. You want to eat them more. If yeah, you but just your canes chicken tenders. Canes. <laughs> yes. Canes. The awesome chicken tender. Thank you very much for your donation. The in and out the chicken. <laughs> yes, the in and out. Uh, but yeah, but they're not even sponsoring us yet. We should canes. Well, your chicken we're tenders. Them, we're giving them until, a taste. Until you sponsor us, your chicken tenders are the worst things in the world. Absolutely horrible. Sorry. Not going to stop me from eating them. But <laughs> there's going to be a spike terrible. in cane sales that corresponds. It's directly three related people, to the, uh, the publishing of this podcast on my web. Okay. Yeah, and I, I thought I found that study absolutely amazing like just the idea that being able to deny pleasure which i'm pretty sure means that i'm not going to achieve anything in my <laughs> life if i remember me as a child correctly i never denied myself anything well i mean i think it's interesting we were talking about the educational attainment and income and studies have also shown that um, there's a positive um, correlation between educational attainment and income up to a certain point and at a certain point it becomes negative and that's when people go on from a first postgraduate degree to a PhD. You see the curve go up, 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 up. And then once you get past the master's nice. degree, then it actually starts I, to drop off. I think that's I'm, also there. Because I'm so it, glad I decided not to not to go for the PhD. A lot of yeah. those first <laughs> postgraduate yeah, degrees are professional degrees. And yeah. terminal degrees. Yeah. Right. And, and so you know, your MBAs, your yeah. law degrees, MD. Yeah. You get more money as... Yeah. An yeah. MBA than well, a philosophy I, I'm PhD. Pretty, I'm pretty sure, as far as mathematics goes, I think our PhDs still make more money than our masters. My guess is that it's because of these terminal professional yeah. degrees, not yeah. not continuing what, what, what along does in the a, same field. What does a um, philosophy M PhD MD, make? No, no. What None, does an MD nothing. count as? Is that a is that a is that on par with a master's, or is they is that one? On I think par it with would be. Uh, I mean, I I think it's the number of years. Um, yeah. For attainment, okay, so, so it would be it's probably it would less be than a PhD. PhD. Oh, oh, a PhD no. you can get in four years, depending on what area you're in. MDs yeah. with residency are. Yeah, but if you that. look at multimillionaires in the world, it's there aren't a ton of MDs who are multimillionaires in the world. There are, there are. I mean, there are the Bill Frists of the world. 
Well, yeah, multi and... to become a multimillionaire as a doctor, it's not that hard so long as you don't have like twelve children, <laughs> uh, or even like three, or again. any. But, you know, I mean, if you, any, you're a right. single doctor, say I mean, doing uh, you're a... plastic surgery yeah. in L.A. If you're a plastic surgeon, or if you're any specialist doctor, you'll end up making three hundred or more a thousand a year, uh, which in in 20 if, years can turn you into a multimillionaire. Yeah. That's very true. Or Unless, three and a half. Or, <laughs> or if you Well, have if you children. spend nothing. Or and have no taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so uh, what other areas of math do you run into? <laughs> oh, well, we do sampling a lot, which oh. is once again stats, but yeah. but we sample at different levels and then we do hierarchical linear linear modeling, HLM on the data. How close do you get to a simple random sample? We we do that. You you, you actually you go you go for the simple random sample and you do just pick like seven people in the whole state, like totally perfect random. Not seven. They get a list of all of the schools in the state. They mm -hmm. sample schools, and a lot of times it's not simple because they wait based on um, they want to get a certain number of urban schools. Oh, or you right, have right. they. We give scores for states and then some districts, some large cities. And so in those districts, you need to oversample, which they then compensate for later on. Um, and they do rural urban weighting. And so, but it's, in some cases, it's fairly simple random sampling within a state. Okay. So each school in the country would not have the same so probability look, of being selected. You nationwide stuff. You're not just Maryland. That's correct. Oh, okay. So one step above your fiance there. <laughs> <laughs> Laura works for the feds. I'm just a lowly state worker. <laughs> okay, so now now we've heard some actual real world examples of the stuff that's that's done. I'd like to bring this onto a slightly more theoretical plane and and more discuss uh, not not necessarily the statistical stuff because when you're when you're dealing with stats, you do tend to be dealing a lot more in the real world than with math. Because, I mean, you're taking data that's actually been found. I mean, people can do horrible things with stats. I'm not going to doubt that. But it's it's less theoretical. I mean, you can just, you know, weight samples however you want. But it doesn't mean that the data itself is wrong. It just means that it's improperly weighted. So let's, let's actually talk about uh, how math can be used and whether it should be used. I mean, mathematics, theoretical mathematics in... I mean, in society, whether it's it's a safe thing, a smart thing to actually do. And uh, I mean, the one thing Nathan and I were talking about this earlier, we were talking about uh, the use of game theory in various different political, in various different social things. And uh, the first thing that we came up with was a uh, use of game theory on Wall Street. And yeah, I believe we, are, we were pretty good with that, right? Yeah, I think that I think that there's not too many better ways to try to handle it uh, on Wall Street anyway. Uh, but uh, and the thing that the thing that we were talking about is that game theory is an inherently uh, what did I say self-serving. Self yeah, it's a self-serving thing. I mean, when you when you do game theory, you essentially expect all of the actors to be acting in their own self-interest and only their own self-interest. They're well, selfish actors. You can you can take game theory and alter it so that not everybody's acting in their own self-interest, but still you have to be acting in your own self-interest for the game theory rules to help yeah you. and every, uh, and the rules that we have in math for game theory i mean they require selfish actors and i don't know if that's a safe thing to do when dealing with uh you know groups of people i mean if 
And if you look at them, I mean, if, if we were only selfish actors, if we only wanted to put money where it will get us the most money back, there's large segments of society that would never get any governmental money if that's the way that we did the analysis. And there's quite a bit of evidence that that's not the way people choose to spend their money all the time. Yeah. I think the other thing that you have to look at if you're going to bring the Wall Street example is that you have a group of people who are traders and executives on Wall Street who are looking at the next quarterly report, the annual bonus check that they're expecting at the end of the year. And there's a significant myopia that, well, it's all about just, you know, cashing in while the getting's good. And um, the concern is not about whether in the long term this is going to generate growth or income. It's about how do I generate as much income as possible for myself in this short term so that no matter what happens to Your the fund certain. that I'm managing, I'm taken care of. Yeah. yeah, and if those same actors so, had longer term perspectives, then it could have been better, even if they continued to act selfishly. Yeah. It could have been better for society at large. Yeah, and you know, I, I know I've talked, I've talked with you before about this, but... I know that you have some feelings on the idea of theoretical math used to make decisions about people's lives. Well, I, I, I think you have to ground it in some qualitative data. You, you need to contextualize, and if you don't do that, it's of limited efficacy. Your models don't really work that well. No, and, and you explain a little bit more on that? I mean, just expound on it? People don't always act, and it doesn't matter if you give them Well, I'm not selfish... talking just game theory. I'm just talking mm -hmm. math in general. I think there are too many intervening variables that aren't explained by the mathematical models. And so if you make decisions based on those, you're not looking at empirical evidence. Okay. I, I, I could see that. When you when you gather when you gather statistical data, you're actually gathering data for a whole bunch of hidden variables as well that you don't even realize that mm -hmm. you are accounting for. And that's why stats I think tends to work a little bit better yeah, in these but, situations because right. you're you're getting the hidden variables you don't know that they're there but you're getting the data yeah and for you them. can explore if you yeah. see something isn't turning out as you thought then you can explore more fully into the and you might be able that. to create to a model that yes. works better right but then when you when you're coming up with a theoretical model you are limited and you can only take in so many variables into a finite number. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it has to be a finite number of well, variables, it's, it's a finite... and we like and we like to do them in small finite numbers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the uh, early ordinals, for sure. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I think that I think that when you do a statistical analysis, um, and when you when you do surveys or or um, uh, sampling, you end up you end up getting. I mean, you get you get trends that are there not because of one variable or even twenty, but because of thousands of variables that you don't even have to take into account to see the trends anyway. If I can bring up another um, example from my work. Go ahead. Um, I did uh, an analysis earlier this year of the costs of doing a construction project in each of the counties in Maryland, and there are 24 different counties. And what we had been hearing for several years is that um, the counties that are um, on the the, what's called the Eastern Shore, which is basically on the, along the um, Atlantic coast, um, that it was much more expensive to do projects there than it would be in um, Baltimore or the uh, Washington, D.C. suburbs area, that um, I-95 corridor. And what we were hearing from the, some of the uh, people who administer these contracts was that it was about 25% more expensive to do it on the Atlantic coast than it was to do it in the Baltimore-Washington corridor. And 
So uh, I had heard from a few different sources that this actually was not the case at all. And so um, I went and looked up uh, some um, RS Means is a, a data publishing company. And then I went and looked at surveys that are done by the state labor department in each one of the 24 counties. And I looked at what's called a prevailing wage rate, which means that you look at each trade. So uh, plumbers, electricians, carpenters, what's the uh, prevailing wage rate per hour, uh, the wages, and then the fringe benefits. And they publish a prevailing wage rate for each one of these trades in each one of the counties. And I went and looked at the um, how far how divergent the wage rates were in the eastern shore counties from the baltimore and what i found was that the eastern shore wage rates were consistently lower than what the baltimore rate was even though when we'd been budgeting projects on the eastern shore we'd been budgeting an extra 25 percent because um, some of our analysts had told us that we should budget an additional 25% for projects that were going to be on the Eastern Shore. And um, the numbers that I ended up with were that it was actually more like 90 to 95% um, <laughs> of the cost of doing it in Baltimore as opposed to 125%. And what was the most interesting part of the analysis was that it was confirmed. I looked at um, a few different data sources. And um, when I brought this to the attention of some of the clients that we work with who are located in that area, they were very upset about well, the yeah. results of the analysis because yeah, they're losing money now right they won't give them as much anymore. so um and so what i did was i wrote up an explanation of the method that i had used i presented them with all the data that i'd used and i said this is how i got the results that i have and this is how i got the conclusions that i drew and um, if you think that there's something lacking in the model or the method let me know and I'll incorporate it in or I'll evaluate whether it's um, reasonable or practical to incorporate it in. And um, the, what was interesting was that our clients didn't um, have any, didn't take issue at all with the method or the model that was being used. Just the results. They were just very <laughs> unhappy about the results. Okay. So, I mean, we've, we've talked about, uh, I mean, the real world example, we've talked about how math can sometimes fail us when dealing with this. And uh, but I mean, sometimes e even theoretical math can do some good. And the one thing that I think that actually does seem to work more often than other things is social network theory. Math seems to actually work in social network theory because social network, I mean, it's, it's based off of graph theory, which is, I, I'm sure I've mentioned on the podcast, what I tend to do my research in. And, and it, I mean, it, it's finding the interactions and the weights of those interactions between people within social networks and not just social networks such as Facebook, which is a very, uh, it's a very broadly and heavily connected but low weight social network. I mean, it, just because you have a connection on Facebook, you really it doesn't really mean that much. Even if you talk to a lot of person, a lot a lot to a single person that you're connected to on Facebook, that does not necessarily mean that you have a strong social connection with that person. Just because you talk to them a lot does not necessarily mean that they will help you out. If say you're low on your rent. But we can actually do research using graph theory and various different graph coloring algorithms that help find, uh, you know, different connections within networks and also see hidden connections. I, I, you were talking about hidden variables before. Social network theory can really help find those hidden variables. And it's really interesting because you can quantify things that are hard to quantify. Yeah. So say the transfer of information. 
that's yeah and it, information transfer and social networks it's i mean it's amazing it also leads to really beautiful looking graphs have you looked at all at uh at peer-to-peer -peer lending um and the social network aspects but i i know i know the basic idea of it and that the, the idea is that the stronger the social connection the social network connection is the higher the likelihood is that the loan will be repaid yeah and, uh, oftentimes uh, there'll be the loan will be divided up among a, a number of different lenders, one or two of whom are a very good friend or family member, and that um, increases the chances that everybody will, will get paid back. And yeah. they often have you come in as a group, right? Um, oh, okay. So, say one of the the big micro loan groups, you come in as a group of five, and you have to form your group of five ahead of time, and you have to make this contract where you're mutually responsible for each other's loans. And one person gets loans, gets a loan at a time. So say if I get the first one, Sam can't get a loan until I pay mine back. So if something happens and my roof goes bad and I have a month where I have trouble paying back my loan, it's in Sam's interest to help. Yeah. And that that's a very interesting idea. I've never thought of yeah. the idea of forming. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a strong, uh, that'd be a strongly connected component mm -hmm. of a graph. It'd be a click, actually. I mean, you could think of it as a click in a, if you're tying in graph theory, a click is uh I mean, it's a, it's a strong, it's also a strongly connected component, but uh, it's a fully connected subgraph of a graph. And I mean, it, it forming that general thing, I mean, that, that is actually a quite smart idea because it's also, even if one of the connections gets severed, say person, say, I don't want to help you. Mm -hmm. Like I, I just don't actually like you, but it's still, there's three other people yes. who's it's in their interest. And but say and then say I fall down and I like after you pay off yours and I mm -hmm. get it back, even though you won't help me because I didn't help you. Therefore, severing that connection. Yes. But there, there's still, still the still other people. Other yeah. And so dealing with that as a click. And also, if you have a yeah, you just said with a group of lenders, you would also have a click. And then you would you have essentially have two clicks that are connected. Probably it would probably actually strongly connected together. Or in other words, there's a, it would complete a flow loop. Between that, because if if you do that, if you do both a click for the people getting the money and a click for the people lending the money, then you could have make sure that each person in one of the click knows at least one person in the other one. And they often have meetings where these different clicks come together once a month, once every two or three months. And so they can network and build connections where, say, if I make bread, that's my my business, and someone else is raising chickens and from a fully separate click, if we come together in these meetings to talk about how our business or is our businesses are doing, I might start buying eggs from the sky racing chickens. Yeah. Or doing joint shipping or that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Oh that's that's an the, the the flip side of the peer lending is that um there's been some evidence that let's say that uh, Sam needs a thousand dollars and Laura decides that she's inclined to help Sam and lend him a thousand dollars and she thinks that he's probably good for it but there's been some distrust or uh, in the past and so what Laura says is all right well um, I'll start and I'll give you five hundred dollars but you need to find at least two other people who will make up the other $500 because my sense is uh, from Laura's perspective that if it's just my money 
maybe you'll just default on me because I'm your sister and you figure, you know, yeah. you've decided that I make enough money that yeah, it doesn't so, matter. So you also use those loosely formed connections mm-hmm. with other people because sometimes, because I mean, it's, it's it generally true. In- Some people don't want to fracture the loosely formed connections as well, because those are harder to repair. I, I imagine that I don't know enough social network theory to know the actual terminology they use. But I think it would be something probably like that. I mean, because there's there's connections. I mean, you have edges, and they might be a low weight edge, but it might be an edge that once it's gone, it's very hard to put back. Compared to a heavyweight edge, say between a brother and a sister, whereas you know even if that gets severed, if that gets taken out, that one might be easy to get that put back in because of you know various. And there could things. be a greater loss of prestige by severing these low level bonds. Yeah, because those... since we previously had this very strong bond if you don't pay me back i'm probably not going to go out and trash your name yeah if i've only met you a few times and you don't pay me back then i'm going to let everyone else know so yeah. that they don't get in they don't find yeah. themselves in the same situation yeah. that's very true you got anything nathan no okay well that is it for another episode oh do you actually have something to say nathan well i did i did want to say um the the guy that got the Nobel Peace Prize most recently got, did a micro loan thing in India. Uh, wasn't right? that an yeah, economics exactly. prize? I thought it was an economics it was a prize. Peace prize I think. It was peace prize. Peace, peace prize yeah. for okay. micro loans. I don't oh, know. If, is this the same? Was that the same type of idea? He does a model with he, groups of. I don't know if he's a groups of five or not, but he does group okay. sharing, and so, he loans so, only to women too. With that, the idea that, that the social 07? bonds between women are stronger. Oh, that sounds like it would take him out of the running. Uh, <laughs> why well i like uh they found out they found out i remember um apple was making ipods in china or something like that and one of the things that they they said is men and women have to be treated equally and then at one point they found out that factories were having were having uh women do the part with the small the small yeah. pieces that are that are valuable outside very... because they thought women were more trustworthy and and, and they were less likely to smuggle things and out. they also have a long history especially in asia of using the women to do these small uh small very expensive work simply because their hands are more dexterous well i mean this this but the the reasoning for this um was because women women were more trustworthy and because of that they decided that it wasn't it wasn't equal treatment of men and women and then there was this kind of controversy i think here though you have a a different issue where women traditionally have had less access to capital yeah and less so, access to opportunity and yeah. so he's working with underserved populations but but he's i mean his, his reasoning might seem like it wasn't it wasn't because he wanted to be good was women based on data based on empirical evidence yeah. from when he first started out yeah and so so it was it was more you know pro uh, like um oh, what's the word and the money was yeah empirically speaking the money was more likely to be returned to the family yeah, so, and say to go to pay off yeah. um kids education if it was given to the women rather mm-hmm. than the men there's a lower risk associated with lending right. women from the data it seems like. okay okay uh, it still it still seems like it's it may be a little a little bit I, I i mean i know that i know that just empirical data might be true but it still seems like there are so many like regulations in the united states that yes uh, a, a man might do a job better. Well, but this isn't like the United that. States. Yeah, it's I know. Bangladesh. <laughs> They're probably not doing as many EEOC investigations in Bangladesh <laughs> as they are yeah. in the U.S. Okay. But okay, so so now now I know more about what what the guy did to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh-huh. 
Okay. Well, uh, we're going to call that an episode. Uh, this has been Combinations and Permutations. If you want to get a hold of us, if you want to you know, mention anything, want any more information about things that are talked about, or if you just want to say, hey, thanks, uh, I'm never listening to you guys again because you suck, uh, please email me at combinationsandpermutations at gmail.com. I promise I will personally email you back. Or if you'd rather have someone else email you back, please let me know who you want to email you back. I'll make sure that that happens. If you want to sponsor us, please email more than happy to deal with that. Keynes, we're saying that particularly with you. And yes, me. yes, of course. Particularly you, CEO of Keynes, who listens to us every week. And also, I will put up a blog with a bunch of links and various pictures that have to do with what we talked about on this week's podcast. And I will uh, now bid you adieu and leave you with a very special song as sung by two of our guests. <laughs> I hope you have a great week. Up for counting when the dealing's done. When to hold them. When to fold them. When to walk away. No when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. Well, that's it for another episode of Combinations and Permutations. If you want to get a hold of us, please email us at combinationsandpermutations at gmail.com. Also, check out our blog at combinationsandpermutations.blogspot.com. This episode has been licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license. All the music that you've heard on this podcast is from SP12. If you like what you hear, go check them out at opsound.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.